Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment, taking big polluters and the government to court, no matter who's in office. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the California Healthcare Foundation, helping low-income Californians get the healthcare they need, on the web at chcf.org. I'm talking into a concrete and PVC pipe that's jutting out into the San Francisco Bay. This is part of a wave organ. It's a musical instrument that's basically played by the waves and the changing tides. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. I'm sitting here looking out at the San Francisco Bay, at Alcatraz and the Golden Gate Bridge, landmarks that everybody knows about. But where I'm sitting is actually a hidden gem. This unique sculpture is something even a lot of locals here don't know about. And that's what we're going to do on our show today. We're going to take you to see hidden gems across the state. We're going to start with an underground cave. In fact, California has a surprising number of caves that are open to the public for things like walking tours or even spelunking. But subterranean tourism isn't actually a new concept here in California. In fact, the first commercial cave opened in this state during the gold rush. And 170 years later, it's still just as impressive as it was to those very first visitors who arrived clutching candles. Reporter Carly Severn took a tour. If you drive deep into the rolling hills of Calaveras County, northwest of Yosemite, and hike a little ways into the woodland, you'll arrive at a rusting door in the rock. Behind it, 80 feet below the earth, is California Cavern. And even just stepping into the cave's mouth is like entering another world. Wow. This is already amazing. (laughs) If you're impressed by this, all right, easy crowd. This place was California's very first show cave, where the public could pay their money and descend into the earth. And the sights they were shown were astonishing. Oh, low ceilings. Your head, an elaborate network of jagged, winding marble tunnels yawning wide to reveal stunning, sweeping chambers where crystals glint on the walls, stretching silently underground for two and a half miles. So, this is 
The big room. This is the cathedral room. It's the largest Escorting me down here is California Cavern tour guide Andrew Kilbreath. He's been chaperoning excitable visitors here and working on his cave jokes for 17 years. It's a good thing I brought the keys, right? You guys are unprepared. Down in the caverns, it's 54 degrees, 365 days of the year. So stepping through this gate on a hot summer's day here feels like heaven. In winter, this temperature means steam actually rises from the cave's mouth, which can kind of look more like hell. Much of California Cavern's early history is shrouded in mystery. The indigenous Miwok people were said to have once used the caverns as a jail. But one day, in 1850, a prospector called Captain Joseph Taylor chanced upon a tiny opening in the rock, and he blew it open. He was hoping to find gold down here, but instead stumbled upon an ornate underworld that immediately captured the public imagination. I noticed that people wanted to go in there, so we gave him the idea of charging a pinch of gold dust or a couple coins and gave him a candle at tour. So starting this off is the very first commercialized cave in California. And as Andrew shows me with his flashlight, etched directly onto the walls, you can see name after name, signatures of those first paying visitors. So this is that historical vandalism right here. From crude etchings to elegant swooping cursive, all done with a candle in one hand and a nail in the other. And occasionally, really rare, but occasionally people find distant relatives on the rocks. Famous writers came down here, Mark Twain, Bret Hart, and John Muir, who visited in 1876 and wrote of the caverns. All a glitter, like a glacier cave with icicle-like stalactites and stalagmites combined in forms of indescribable beauty. But the really special thing about California Cavern is the underground lakes. These foreboding pools of dark water stretch into the blackness. But when you hold a light to them, the water's so crystal clear, it's almost invisible. And during the flood season, unless you hear the soft bubbles rising, it's easy to step straight in without even realizing, like I did. Several times a year, California Cavern opens up these lakes to tour groups, meaning you can raft or even swim across them. Neat to say you swim on an underground lake. Little, little creepy knowing there's 80 feet of pitch black water below you. But it's quite the experience. It's really, really something else. And you know how when you gaze into clouds, your eyes seek out familiar faces and shapes and patterns? Down here, where it's dark, that impulse is only more intense. So yeah, you really, if you do have a good imagination, you can spend hours down here staring up at the ceiling. Bathed in the colorful artificial light that fills California Cavern, swirling rock formations look like frozen waterfalls, crouching figures, jellyfish, popcorn, even demonic faces. And they're all revealed by the kind of illumination that, if it hadn't been for Captain Taylor's thirst for gold back in 1850, would never have happened. It's not really, wasn't really meant to ever be seen, because without any lights in here, it's pitch black. So all the beauty is just shrouded in darkness all the time. So uh, it's kind of just a weird way of thinking about how much beauty is down here, but not really ever meant to be, be looked at without bringing in the lights. On our way out of the caverns, we pass the day's first tour group coming down. And as our guide Andrew leads us out of the depths and up into blazing sunlight again, we can hear their excited voices gradually receding behind the rocks. It seems like the thrill of seeing things you were kind of never meant to see never gets old. For The California Report, I'm Carly Severn in California Cavern.
Speaking of things that you're never meant to see, the next spot we're gonna visit is a very secretive Los Angeles mansion. It's called the Magic Castle. And since 1963, it's been a kind of exclusive clubhouse for magicians, illusionists, and Hollywood celebrities. But KQED's Jessica Placek said the magic words to give us a peek inside. You get in by saying the secret password to an owl on a bookshelf. Open sesame. And with that, the bookcase swings open. Inside, the mansion's burgundy walls are covered in ephemera and dimly lit by chandeliers. The place is maze-like, and it's easy to feel lost and a little overstimulated by all the ornate details. It kind of feels like a magician's version of The Great Gatsby. Winding your way up staircases, down halls, through bars, lounges, and banquet halls, sometimes you won't know what floor you're even on. There are four theaters. The biggest can seat 150. The smallest, about two dozen. Change it to a beautiful, shining, summer half dollar. And that's not to mention impromptu performances you'll see from magician bartenders. <laughs> and the amateurs who will make your card appear tattooed onto another guest's wrist. No! <laughs> <laughs> Then there's various magic installations. The Magic Castle's Vicky Greenleaf brought me over to Irma, a piano-playing ghost you can ask questions and interact with. Irma, how are you tonight? I've heard it said that the biggest trick in town is, is getting into the Magic Castle, so you do have to know a member or a member magician to get a pass. But these days, if you're staying at one of their partner hotels, you can get in. And once you're on the list, you gotta dress up, make dinner reservations, and do not take any pictures inside. Even if you see Adele, Ryan Gosling, or Neil Patrick Harris, who used to be the president of the Magic Castle board. This is LA after all. In the Owl Bar, I found one of the two brothers who started this place, Milt Larson. You know, my father and mother were in magic, and. Uh... And we were the Larson family of magicians. They toured California doing shows and opened a magic shop in L.A. His mother is said to have been the first woman magician on television. People here call the Larsons magic royalty. There's a picture in our seance room where I'm eight years old doing a coin trick for Mrs. Houdini. Milt's also met a lot of magicians since opening the Magic Castle, and he is not afraid to share his opinions. Have you met David Blaine? I'm not terribly fond of him. Milt took the lead on renovating this building when they first got it, and fixed it up using salvaged materials. They tore down um, the L.A. County Courthouse, and they took the judge's doors and used them as paneling in these theaters. This top right here is from uh, the gymnasium floor of uh, Hollywood High. There are artifacts from notable magicians and even old sets from television shows and movies. Those backdrops are the original backdrops when the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson moved to Los Angeles. This was Jack Nicholson's headboard in The Witches of Eastwick. While Milt was the builder, his brother Bill took care of the business. And for many years, Bill's wife Irene was considered the hostess. And she helped foster a place full of magic and pranks. 
people taking the performers' clothes while they're changing, so then they had to run through the castle without their clothes. This is in the 70s and the 80s, by the way. I don't think anyone would do it now. This is Bill and Irene's daughter, Erica Larson. Both of her parents have passed, but their legacy of enforcing the strict dress code is still around. My mom's best friend was Siegfried from Siegfried and Roy, and one night he shows up in jeans and he tries to get in and... And basically, I, my mom was just like, Secret, you of all people cannot come in here in jeans. Another rule, the library is members only. People aren't expecting a library of 28,000 items in a club. Librarian Joe Fox says magicians come here to practice in front of mirrors or fellow magicians. And unsurprisingly, even he has a few tricks up his sleeve. Now, a letter opener is good for opening up the sinuses. And with that, he shoved the six-inch rod perpendicularly into his face. Oh, this is really gross. Oh, God. Does that look real? Yeah, it looks really real. Oh. For the California Report, I'm Jessica Plachek in Los Angeles. You're listening to the California Report magazine. It's our hidden gem show. We're taking a road trip to spots around the Golden State like this wave organ on the edge of the San Francisco Bay. It's a musical sculpture, and its sounds change with the tides. We're going to head to our next stop now to grab a bite to eat, because every good road trip needs a roadside diner. I grew up in L.A., just a mile from LAX, and I'm going to take you to one of my family's favorite neighborhood spots. Hi, good morning. Welcome to Dynas. How are you doing? We've been eating their one-of-a-kind apple pancakes for more than four decades. Table for seven, please. It's called Dynas, and it's a diner that opened in 1959 with googie-style architecture. Think the Jetsons, big red and blue stucco orbs jutting from the ceiling, rock walls, and vinyl booths. We have to get the apple pancake, though. I mean, we have to, for nostalgia's sake. No, I know, but sometimes I feel like mixing it up. That there's so many options, you know? Pancakes, waffles, chicken. So the menu is endless. That's my little brother, Akash. We've been fighting over what to order here since we were kids. Our bacon and cheese waffle. <laughs> it's a bacon and cheese waffle. But in the end, I win out. Could we order an apple pancake, actually? Um, I think we should get a large, for the whole table large. Takes 20 minutes, but it's worth it. Can't find it anywhere else. It makes your your day better. (laughs) It's hard for my kids to be patient while we're waiting for the apple pancake. Apple pancake, apple pancake, apple pancake. Like a giant apple pie for breakfast. Yeah. Yumminess. While we're waiting, I chat with Terry Ernst. She started here as a waitress in 1972. Eventually, she married the son of the owner, and she and her husband now run the place. I ask her where Dinah's got its name. She says her in-laws were looking for something that sounded Southern. So no one in the family is named Dinah. So, but you know the song, Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah? Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen, I know. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Strumming on the old banjo. I mean, we have food here, a lot of the traditional plates that nobody makes anymore. Meatloaf, imagine that. Who makes liver and onions nowadays? Fried chicken gizzards. That's Carla Maraveles. She's worked at Dinah's 20 years, and she says everything here is made from scratch. The gravies, mashed potatoes, biscuits. This is definitely a place where time has stood still. 
uh, I mean, when people come in here, I greet them. I make sure that they're seated where they want to, especially our old schoolers. We already know where they want to sit. People like Alice Smith, who always likes a big booth near the front. We come here probably three, four times a week. My wife and I usually come to breakfast, and my uncle and I, we come to breakfast, and we also come to dinner on Thursday evenings, every Thursday. Is there a particular special or something on Thursdays? Chicken. All you can eat chicken. The fried chicken is actually what draws many regulars to Dinah's. It's breaded the day before, fried and pressure cooked in a special machine. In fact, Dinah's has a big chicken bucket up on a pole outside its takeout department. The owners say the guy who pioneered the design went on to bring the idea to KFC. Dinah's 50s decor has been used as a backdrop for Hollywood, too. Shows like Modern Family and Malcolm in the Middle. And its signature red and white chicken bucket was featured in the film Little Miss Sunshine. Chicken! Holy God almighty! Is it possible just once we could get something to eat for dinner around here that's not the damn chicken? Hey, Dad! I'm just saying! But for me, it's really about the apple pancake. After a 20-minute wait, it's finally here. Then you have to put the big scoop of butter on top of the apple pancake so it basically rolls all over it like a snowball and melts the butter all over the crispy apples and brown sugar. Who else wants an apple pancake? Just as I'm biting into the layers of apple and cinnamon, I get invited back into the kitchen to see how these pancakes are made. A tall man in a tall chef's hat is pouring pounds of peeled and sliced apples into a skillet of sizzling butter. Salome Jimenez, everybody calls him Uncle Salome, is 73. He's from Jalisco, Mexico, and he's worked here 47 years. He comes out of retirement on the weekends to whip up the apple pancakes for the crowd because he's faster than anybody else. He tells me this is the only place in California that makes these pancakes. Every one the size of a pie, baked individually in a cast iron skillet. Dinah's makes four to 500 of these every month. I watch as Salome pours a flour and egg mixture over the apples, then sprinkles huge scoops of cinnamon and sugar over the top. Wow. He slides it in the oven to bake for 10 to 15 minutes. When it comes out, he'll flip over the pancake in the skillet so the apples sit on top of the dough. Gracias, gracias. También le voy a decir tío, Salome, gracias. <laughs> I am ecstatic. I am watching the apple pancake master reveal the secrets of my childhood comfort food. This summer, Dinah's marked its 60th anniversary with a blast from the past event where they lowered all their prices to match the menu from 1959. No apple pancakes, but you could get a breakfast special, bacon or sausage, eggs, and two regular pancakes for $1.25. Dinah didn't make no pudding, didn't make the apple pie. And now we're going to head to a tiny museum many Californians have probably never even heard of. It doesn't look like your typical museum because it's a working lighthouse. And as Bianca Taylor tells us, it was also one of the first museums to celebrate how surfing hit the mainland. 
traveling from Hawaii to California. At Santa Cruz, California, where we're told the breakers are as high as any of the Pacific rolls to the beaches, there's surf riding competition which makes for a pleasant sport. Santa Cruz has been luring surfers to its beaches for decades. Surfers like Kim Stoner. I started surfing in 1962. It was a, a life-changing event. Once you get it in your blood, it's hard to get it out. Kim is a surf historian and a founder of the Santa Cruz Surfing Museum. We came up with the idea in 1985. But, Kim says, the history of surfing in Santa Cruz goes back a hundred years earlier. It was a hot summer day in July um, in 1885. Three Hawaiian princes. David, Edward, and Jonah. That's David Kawananakoa. Edward Kili Iahonui and Jonah Kalaniana Ole. And they introduced surfing to Santa Cruz here. The teenagers were sent to California by the King of Hawaii to attend St. Matthew's Military Academy in San Mateo. One day, David got a glimpse of some big waves at the mouth of the San Lorenzo River, close to where the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk sits today. He probably saw the waves a perfect A-frame, similar to the waves of Waikiki at the time and said, when he went back, he told us, man, we got to make some surfboards. So they went to a lumber mill, picked up some redwood planks, and shaped them by hand using knives. Those boards were 17 feet long and weighed more than 200 pounds. And uh, it was exciting. I mean, it, it basically cemented in stone that surfing originated here in Santa Cruz. The Santa Cruz Surfing Museum is housed in a small lighthouse overlooking Steamers Lane, a famous surfing beach. Outside, there's a plaque commemorating the three princes, but inside is where you really start to get your surf education. It's kind of congested in here, but we have a lot of stuff, but it's very pertinent. Surfboards are hanging from the rafters. There's flippers and old t-shirts tacked onto display boards. And everywhere you look, there are incredible photos of people surfing in Santa Cruz, dating all the way back to the early 1900s. But because it's such a tiny space, the size of a large living room, a timeline guides you through the museum, starting with a replica of the board the Hawaiian princes rode. And come over here now. This is that's this like is a, a door. Redwood, this is a redwood board right here. This is first growth redwood. See how tightly grained it is. This is really heavy. This is the kind of wood that the uh, the boards that the princes had were made out of. Next to that, a beat up yellow ironing board rests against the wall. Yeah, I know the ironing. Did board. someone this surf on an ironing board? Yeah. Somebody uh, made this, and they had this old imprint on here of, the, of these ducks or birds. Walk a little further, and you get into the 1960s. This is when I started surfing, early 60s. It um, was becoming more popular. Contests were, were, were coming around. Bob Brown now has the judge's eyes, and the surfing teenager is showing some classy form. He's declared the new champion of the surfing state. And then a few more steps, and you're done. We're only up to the 90s here because we're kind of out of space. Kim hopes they can expand into the 2000s someday. But even still, the museum is an incredible archive of the history of surfing. And not just in Santa Cruz, but throughout the world. Because so many of today's surfing standards, from techniques to technologies, were invented and perfected in Santa Cruz. One of my favorite things about this museum is that it's so homegrown. Kim says almost everything in here came from the local community. Everybody just digging for stuff that you had, whether it was boards, pictures, um, talking to your family members. That's what you're seeing in here. And it's truly a labor of love. The museum is managed by volunteers, funded by donations, and is always free to visit. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a gem. I think we're very lucky to have it. But you don't have to be a surfer to appreciate the Santa Cruz Surfing Museum. 
it might be enough to stand outside the lighthouse, smell the salty air, hear the waves crashing on steamers lane below you, and imagine when 140 years ago, three Hawaiian princes lugged a 200 pound piece of wood into the freezing water, paddled out, and for the first time, stood up. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Santa Cruz. And finally, our last hidden gem takes us back to Gold Rush country. This time we're headed to Amador County, 30 miles east of Sacramento. Tourists come there for the wineries and the casinos, but on some weekends you can also take a train trip up into the hills to see what lured miners to the Golden State. Asala Sanapur takes us aboard the Amador Central Railroad. Everybody get their tickets? No, I need to get uh, three more tickets. By 9 a.m., the sun is already blazing over the small town of Ione. But that doesn't stop the line of people snaking around Lane Station. There's your change and there's your tickets. Thank you. Okay. Have a good time, you. you guys. For 10 bucks, they can ride a three-mile stretch of railroad dating back to the Gold Rush era. In 1904, it was the only way to bring supplies up the hills of California's mother load. Today, a burly crew of railroad enthusiasts help keep it alive. We're not your normal railroad buffs. We're historians, keepers of the history. That's the Amador Central's excursion coordinator, Mark Demler. He and a group of hobbyists bought this stretch of tracks from the Sierra Pacific for a dollar back in 2010. That's right, one dollar. You know, when the railroad was just us, it wasn't nearly as much fun as the last couple of years when we've opened it up to the public. And neutral. The group restores vintage motor cars, small rail cars that only seat four passengers. They start by unloading the cars on the tracks, manually aligning the older ones using giant metal turning skis called a turntable. A little more, a little more. That's good. Then they test the brakes, load the cars with fuel, and check the radios. Okay, I think we're ready. We want to welcome you to the Amador Central Railroad. Uh, we are the owners and operators and volunteers that make this operation occur, and we do it solely for you. This is anything but a straight line railroad. We're snaking through curves constantly. You don't like the view? Wait a minute, we'll see something else. As we twist and turn up the steep little road, the landscape alternates from sun-drenched open valleys to patches of shade where horses can lounge. Mark points out some sites that the 49ers saw traveling these exact tracks. That's the original water ditch bringing water down to the city of Ione from the lakes up in the mountains. Then we turn into bovine meadow where cattle stare us down as they block our path. Interesting old barn down there, that round top goes back to the 1920s, one of the older buildings left out here. As red-tailed hawks fly above us, gold-speckled quartz vein, elderberry plants, and oak trees dot the terrain. In the spring, I'm told these meadows become a sea of flowers. But today, golden thistle plants wave around in the wind, which grows stronger as the train rides higher. So we're about uh, 1,200 feet up a hillside. We're about 1,400 feet above sea level. And as we snake around through these hills, we occasionally get glimpses of the Sacramento Valley. We can see Lodi from here. 
Once we reach the top of the hill, we spot Mount Diablo over a hundred miles away. But for Mark, it's not just about the views or the history, it's about the people he gets to share it with. To know that you're bringing an, an adventure to somebody's day is really what it's all about. After a half hour, we hop off so the railroaders can turn the cars around. Then we head back to Lane Station, where they'll get ready for their next ride of the day. For the California Report, I'm Asal Sanapur in Ion. And from the Wave Organ on the San Francisco Bay, that's it for this week's Hidden Gem Show. If you've got a California hidden gem you want to tell us about, you can email us, calreport at kqed.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-830-6580. That's 415-830-6580. We might visit your spot for a future show. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Susie Racho edited this week's show. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon, and our team also includes Asala Sanapur, Olivia Allen Price, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, a not-for-profit offering earthquake insurance to help Californians protect their financial futures. For more information, go to earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.